I'm Bethany. And I'm Cassie. Today we're telling a story of siblings born and bred to run the world. They were the most infamous family of the 20th century. Their story drips with conspiracy. Their names whispered through the decades since they left their voices echoing in time and space. Their hands helped mold the America we know sharing with their country dreams of landing on the moon, freedom for every man. And by example, they inspired generations to reach the highest heights. They played with fire, and only a few survived. Their words ring through our history books, their pretty faces on our television screens, and their signature will forever be stamped on our national identity. They stood in the trenches. We stood beside them. They flashed their diamonds. We flashed our cameras. They had their fun, and we saluted them. They were good. They were evil. They were human. They are the Kennedy siblings. She was the favorite daughter the most active, and the one with the most promise in her father's eyes. All my ducks are swans, but Kathleen was especially special. Joe Kennedy. When the Kennedy family sailed to England to join Joe Sr. in his position of ambassador, arguably the most excited family member was Kick. She had visited England before during Cambridge's May Week, a celebration at the end of the school year, and she loved the British. Kick hadn't even gotten settled in London before she got her first official invitation to an important event. Lady Astor had requested her presence for a weekend at her home in the English countryside. Lady Astor was the first woman seated as a member of parliament. Aside from her political career, she was also famous for hosting the most impressive house parties in all of England. Charlie Chaplin had even been a guest of hers. Kick had been raised that she belonged in every room she ever walked into. She was intimidated by nothing. Not pedigree, not wealth, not position. She too belonged. So she was completely unbothered by the small town that was Lady Astor's estate or the 30 plus staff that worked in the main house alone. Coachmen, butlers, chefs, maids, dairymen, electricians, carpenters, I mean, really a whole village. And Kick rolls up completely by herself, ecstatic and confident, largely unfazed. Lady Astor had assigned a debutante to chauffeur and accompany Kick for the weekend. It was a considerate gesture, one which I would have been greatly appreciative of, but for Kick, it was unnecessary. Kick ended up speaking more than her debutante companion did, and in the perfectly skilled culture of British aristocracy. She didn't even notice that Lady Astor was boldly anti-Catholic, nor that her estate was known casually as, quote-unquote, the pro-Nazi headquarters of England. 
Kick was there to have a good time, and a good time she would have. She seemed to be immune to the insecurities that nearly every 17, 18, 19-year-old girl is plagued with, and instead was effortlessly and fully present with whomever she was in conversation. She knew she could get away with more than British women, and thus walked the line between playful and naughty, never dipping into vulgarity with the skill of an it-girl socialite twice her age. Like Jack, Kick was more comfortable in this situation, and much less so with real intimate emotions. And the British welcomed this style of relations with the warm embrace of a familiar friend, for this was how they too most preferred to be. Another mark of the British monarchy and elite society was hiding away their imperfect genetics. They were worried about purity of bloodlines, and those who had any disability would never be introduced to society. Instead, they mysteriously disappeared, off living in a countryside estate somewhere. Queen Elizabeth's grandfather, Lord Strathmore, had an older brother that no one but himself his eldest son, and two caretakers ever saw. He literally was confined to a countryside home for his entire life. Queen Elizabeth also had two cousins, Catherine and Nerissa, who were both declared dead in 1941, but in reality had been shipped off to a mental hospital where they lived on for decades. This is the Queen and the society that the Kennedys debuted Rosemary to, right alongside Kick. Both Kick and Rosemary had learned to curtsy at Sacred Heart Convent School, but a British curtsy in front of the Queen was a bit different. So this event called for more intense practice, and Rosemary was required to practice hour after hour for literally days before they were presented to the King and Queen. She had been to dances before, but always on the arm of Jack or Joe Jr., never out there by herself, and never in front of the king and queen. So Rose was adamant that she did indeed need the practice. And this part reminds me of when Al Ringling locked his brother in a room and he was like, please learn to play the violin. I will let you out when you are done. <laughs> I don't know if there was a please in there. But... <laughs> yeah, exactly. This also brings up a story that Cassie and I have recently read. Remember how Rosemary would go to those dances and she would ask, why are none of the other boys dancing with me? It's only my brothers and their friends. Uh-huh. Well, I was just thinking, oh, no one was going to approach her right. or whatever. That's not that weird. She was different. And yeah, I thought that it was like a natural exclusion. Right. No, 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 no. <laughs> Joe Jr. and Jack took it upon themselves to be the protective older brothers that they were and would literally go around and have their friends sign these like dancing cards, I guess you would have your dance partners like all lined mm-hmm. up yeah. throughout the night. And it wasn't just like a, you walked up to whoever. No, you no. had like a designated booking card. Yes, a booking <laughs> card. So Jack and Joe Jr. would take Rosemary's booking card to all of their friends, have them fill out the entire thing so there weren't any empty spots. And also allegedly 
they would threaten people, <laughs> threaten other people that they are not allowed to dance with Rosemary and they better stay away. And they, so they that's not why to sign Rosemary's booking card. Right. So that's why Rosemary had familiar faces every time she went to the dance. She was always dancing with the same people because those were the only people that Joe Jr. and Jack trusted enough to dance with her. Which, Rosemary was gorgeous. I don't blame them. Absolutely gorgeous. And also a little too naive. Luella Hennessy, remember she's the family nurse, helped Rosemary get dressed for her presentation to the queen and told her, Oh, Rosemary, you're going to be the best looking one. Realizing that though she would have told her this no matter what, it was simply true. You're so beautiful. So beautiful. She repeated. And reportedly, Rosemary seemed at peace with this. Both Kick and Rosemary wore white tulle gowns and looked like a pair of angels as they floated into Buckingham Palace. They walked side by side up the red carpet when they heard their names announced and curtsied in unison before the king and queen. They glided off to the side. Everything had gone perfectly until just before she was home free, Rosemary tripped. The king and queen smiled kindly as if nothing had happened. Rosemary absolutely had not just almost hit the floor in her heaven-ready gown, and she recovered, rejoined Kick, and in a couple of short seconds, exited stage left. They never spoke of it, and Rose raved about the evening as if every moment had been the picture of perfection. I love getting to hear this little bit about Rose's parenting because we see the same thing happening with Joe Sr. When Joe Jr. and Jack give a presentation or a speech or something, he never talks about or even acknowledges when they mess up. <laughs> He's just like, no, that was amazing. They would yeah. kind of dissect the situation and figure out, is there really a purpose in me being critical here? Because if not, I'm not going to. Yeah, be. they were just such intentional parents. Yes. This kindness from her mother allowed Rosemary not to realize how bad she had stumbled in front of the Queen of England. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. For Kick, the party did not end. Not that night, not the next week, not ever. I tend to think she may have been a seven like Jack. We've talked about her Enneagram. Maybe she's a one who's always really healthy. Her nights were filled with balls and dinners and then escaping the event, returning early in the morning hours only for the playing of God Save the King. I imagine her and her friends carrying their shoes, running through the lamplit streets of London in tulle dresses. They would hang out at the 400 Club or Café de Paris or drive through the streets to private home parties. Allegedly, the most risque happenings on these evenings would have just been a stolen kiss in an alley on the way back to the ball. For London's debutantes, just being out at night in such an adult world was exciting enough. And this is something that I've read over and over about Kathleen specifically. That she always carried a good helping of her mother's devotion to the Catholic faith, and she surrounded herself with other people who conducted themselves in a similar way. One night, while chatting in a nightclub, her debutante friends were astounded at a married man conversing with other women. Quote, That's what all men do, Kick shared. 
you know that women can never trust them. The crowd Kick was running with was so innocent and so naive that one of them, well, I'll let her tell you. Here's Kick's friend, Sarah Norton Baring. I knew what happened to animals. I just didn't associate it with human beings. We thought you could get pregnant with a kiss. We discovered the truth eventually through conversations with people who had crossed the Rubicon. When we heard, we thought it was disgusting. I mean, <laughs> these poor girls. The young men that these debutantes hung out with most of the time went to all male schools and were often as innocent as the young women. This is a crime. This part is funny. They would wear white gloves so as not to get any sweaty hands on any of the girls' dresses. <laughs> this is a world I know not. For Kathleen, this was perfect. Because for as sensual as she was, which we will talk about more. Well, here's a quote. I think she probably had more sex appeal than any girl I've ever met in my life. She wasn't especially pretty. But she just had this appeal. So almost every one of Jack's friends that he brought home left Hyannisport completely obsessed with Kathleen. And yet, she hated being touched in any way that was suggestive of anything. And that also needs to be discussed further. In May of 1938, the magazine Queen published the headline, America's Most Important Debutante. Kick's world had cracked wide open. She made fun of many of her suitors in letters to Lem. He was an ocean away, so Kick could be fully transparent about her feelings towards certain people that he would never have to be around. Also, because Lem was a gossip and relished every juicy detail, she would literally out these poor boys, word for word. And here's a few examples. You'll always mean everything to me. Signed, Peter. Darling kick. When, oh when. Or. Your devoted lover, Prince Ahmed Hussein, Oxford. <laughs> she wrote Lem. I so often think of you when I meet a guy who thinks he's absolutely the tops and is just a big man. What laughs you and Jack would get. Very few of them can take any kidding at all. Lem wrote back to warn her that Peter Grace is wildly in love with you and is heading for England this summer in order to clinch the romance. So watch it, Kick. <laughs> she and Peter had dated back in the States and Kick's warm letters made him feel that he still had a chance with her. So when he told her that he would be boarding the Queen Mary and sailing across the ocean to visit her and she seemed excited about it, he received the impression that he would be warmly welcomed upon his arrival. He walked up to Prince's Gate. That's the home that the ambassador to England always lives at. Told the butler, I'm Peter Grace, and I'm here to see Miss Kathleen Kennedy. The butler responded, I'm afraid that's quite impossible, sir. Miss Kennedy is in Sussex at the races. Peter turned around, walked back down the street the other way, reboarded the Queen Mary, and sailed back to America. Quote, We were close. I had taken her out every night in New York. But I don't blame her. She was a young girl, extremely attractive around all these dukes and princes. She was getting around in the highest circles of society. 
I sort of figured she was caught up on that glamour. And you can't fight that. The thing is, Kick would have been there, waiting for Peter when he got to her door, had she not attended the King and Queen's annual garden party just a few days before. For it was there that she was first introduced to one William Billy Cavendish, the most eligible young bachelor in all of England. He was from such a highly valued bloodline that he was actually considered for marriage to Princess Elizabeth. And yes, that is again the queen that just passed away. She was 12 at the time, but they already knew that she would be the next queen. And Billy was to be the Duke of Devonshire, the wealthiest and most important man in all the kingdom after the king. It's not a political position. It's just you are born the king, you're born the prince or whatever, you're born the duke. We don't pretend to understand the ways of the British. But Billy's family was one of the highest political families in all of England. And these Cavendish men, because politics doesn't pay too well, gained their immense fortune in a very skillful manner. Marrying wealthier and wealthier women with each generation and inheriting estates all over the country in the process. So William, kicks Billy, grew up in Churchdale Hall, a gloomy country estate in Derbyshire. And also Chatsworth, a massive palace where they would spend their winters, Lismore Castle in Ireland, which they visited in February, March, and April. A big house in London was for May, June, and part of July. And then Bolton Abbey for the hunting season in August and part of September. In October, they spent in Hardwick Hall for the partridge season. Merely meager beginnings. If you're not watching the home video version on Patreon right now, you have to Google Chatsworth because, oh my gosh. So, even if William Cavendish was a lazy dud, many, many debutantes would have been hysterical about marrying him because of all that came with marrying him. But young Billy was not a dud. He was the picture of a British gentleman. He was humble, 6'2", and was finishing up a bachelor's degree in history. He stood with a stooping stance, as if he were afraid he was taking up too much space. According to Lawrence Lemur. But growing up this way left Billy numb. He had a very stiff and refined environment in his childhood, which was wonderful for the image and for the lineage, but it was to the detriment of him, Billy, the person. He had almost no life left in him when he and Kick first met. He wasn't passionate about anything. Kick, in contrast, was a roaring fire. A friend said, Kick was the merriest girl you ever met. She had the same witty conversation that Jack had. So they were fire and ice. And Billy was completely taken. Billy's heart grew three sizes that day. (laughs) He and Kick talked for over an hour that first day, and they were both equally intrigued by the other. So where's the issue? Well, the Cavendish family had become this great political force in England, largely because of their stance against the Roman Catholic Church. To the point of declaring a rebellion against the appointment of the Catholic king, James II. 
So dating all the way back to the 17th century, Billy's family had a history of bloodshed and protest against Kick's family's entire belief system and the faith that she held personally, the faith that she had built her entire life upon. Billy's dad loved booze and hated the Catholic Church. And though he really rather abhorred the position of Ducud, he was annoyed by all of his estates and possessions that he had inherited. And though he seemed to really not enjoy much other than his liquor, he did relish in the fact that his lineage was the most famous family in all of England for opposition to the Catholic Church. So for a man who held nothing dear, this was a foundational and emotional trait. All I hear it there is, I don't give a damn about my reputation. Bow, bow, bow. <laughs> he sounds a whole heck of a lot like Black Jack Bouvier as well. But remember, this is not Billy. This is Billy's father. Fraternizing even with Billy, though, the son of this character, and the newest generation in a long line of Catholic haters was a betrayal against Kick's entire family. Fraternizing with Kick was also a betrayal against Billy's entire family. Siri, play Love Story by Taylor Swift. I love a good Romeo and Juliet story. I don't. To the title and position of Duke of Devonshire, marrying a Catholic would have been like flipping the bird to three centuries of family members. Nevertheless, they wanted to get to know each other better. So just a couple of days after meeting... Billy invited Kick to his family home in Eastbourne Compton Place to watch the races. And though she knew she would be standing Peter up, remember him from the trip across the ocean in the Queen Mary? Kick went anyway. They totally knew what they were doing. It sounds to me like Kick had already made up her mind. Billy had already made up his mind. He brought her to his family home. And they like struggled with it afterwards. Like, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But. Keep in mind that at this point, they've only had like an hour long talk. And keep in mind that Kick was not like this. She was not someone who right. fell in love with every other dude she met. She was not a hopeless romantic. She in was any non-committal. Way, shape, Absolutely. Didn't. I mean, you'll see. She didn't even leave a note for poor Peter Grace. Kick wasn't the best with emotions or with goodbyes. And so as she moved on from Peter to Billy and from her family's values into the unknown, she chose not to look back. Into the unknown. Kick, there and after, became a bit infatuated with Billy. He was in the paper all the time. And so Kick started to keep a scrapbook of each clipping she came across, even when he appeared on dates with other girls. Mm, Stalker status. (laughs) She gave no evidence of her feelings to him, though, and she continued to see other boys, which made her all the more desirable to Billy. The Countess of Sutherland said, I remember going to a dance and sitting next to Billy, and he spent the whole dinner telling me how wonderful Kathleen was. The first glimpse of war that Kick ever witnessed was in July 1939, when Joe Jr. took her on a trip to Spain with a friend. It was an impactful trip for Kick, not only because of the real-life effects of war, but also because Joe Jr. had been there when the siege on the Capitol first happened, and it brought her even more pride in her big brother. 
she had already idolized him her entire life, but hearing the Spaniards talk about Joe Jr. being there as an eyewitness when the Nationalists took the capital took her admiration to another level. Quote, What fun we had. I remember thinking then of how brave Joe was when different Spaniards told me of how he, the only American there, used to walk the streets during the horrible bloody days of the siege of Madrid. From Spain, they traveled together to a villa outside of Cannes, where Rose and the rest of the family were waiting. I'm almost positive that this is when the family ran into Marlene Dietrich and her daughter, Maria Sieber. I would have gladly given an arm, a leg, or any remaining limb to be one of them. Kick loved being with her family and loved the French Riviera, but she wanted to get back to England as soon as possible because Billy was having his coming-of-age party at Chatsworth, which, mind you, he's turning 21, and the party was a two-day circus. Like, (laughs) synchronized ponies, all of it. Rose absolutely forbid it. And though she was 19 and a young adult at this point, Kick could not dream of disobeying her parents. So she missed the ponies. And this is when we catch up to the events of episode five. When the gallivanting came to an abrupt halt as England declared war on Germany. Back in England, while Joe Sr. rushed back to his duties as ambassador, Joe Jr., Jack, and Kick accompanied Rose to Parliament to witness Prime Minister Chamberlain's speech on why the country had to go to war. As they headed out of the building, the air was pierced by the sound of an air raid siren. When they got out to the streets, people were rushing around carrying gas masks, and they hurriedly ran into the nearest shelter. Rose said that when the siren went off, her first thought was, That's Hitler's efficiency having an air raid as soon as war is declared. The irony is that once they were crouching in the shelter, Rose realized where they were. Not in a bomb shelter, but in the basement of Molyneux, the French designer that she wore to kick and Rosemary's royal court presentation just the year before. I thought later, what an ironic way for a woman to begin her war experiences. Rose reflected. When she and Joe decided it was time for the majority of the family to retreat to the United States, Kick wanted nothing of it. She wanted to stay in England with Billy. But things were already different. Because of its location outside of a major city, Chatsworth, the estate that Billy would inherit later, became a girls' school and homed 300 students and teachers, and many of Kick's debutante friends that had been so carefree before were now coming together to work in factories or as nurses to do what they could to help the war effort. Staying in England was impossible. On the last weekend there, the entire family gathered at a countryside home and they were all together for one last time. Joe Sr., Rose, Joe Jr., Jack, Rosemary, Kick, Eunice, Pat, Bobby, Jean, and Teddy. And also one friend, Tom Edgerton, who remembered. They were all so gay and never stopped talking, chatting away sometimes even over the top of each other. Kathleen was so unhappy to be going back. 
but what I recall most of that afternoon was the sheer exuberance, the happiness, the enjoyment in each other, and the moment. Then they dispersed. Joe Sr. going back to the embassy, Rosemary went off to the convent that she loved so much, and everybody else went back home. We're also thinking that this might be the last time that they all were together. Because Christmas 1941, everyone gathered except for Rosemary. And after that, Joe Jr. and Jack go off to combat. And we know what happens after that. As soon as Kick got back to New York, she had but one sole focus. Fun. She integrated herself immediately back into the social elite of New York City and met up with one Peter Grace all over again. Can she just let Peter Grace live? (laughs) He was happy to forgive her for standing him up in England in exchange for another chance at the relationship. But after a couple of dates, Kick realized he was just the same. She tried to enroll at Sarah Lawrence, the school that Jackie and Lee also went to. And actually, that's the one that Jackie brought in her whole art collection and totally showed Lee up to Lee's art teacher mm-hmm. and was getting all the attention. And then Barbara Walters said that Lee was like barely a participant and only there when she had to be before she dropped out. <laughs> Kick wasn't overly academic and was denied enrollment. And so she instead settled for a junior college called Finch. Oh, Lee, always throwing away the gold that other people envied. But it wasn't all disappointment for Kick. Upon returning to the States, she and her sisters were full-blown celebrities. Richard Edwards, a friend, said, One evening in Cambridge, we went out on the town. Lem Billings, Kathleen, and Eunice. What I do remember vividly is that wherever we went, the Kennedy girls were recognized by almost everyone. But as much as Kick enjoyed this and had fun with the new attention... Her heart was still longing for the land of afternoon tea and the monarchy. She felt a loyalty and a longing to be with her friends who were working in factories and deciphering foreign codes and tending to wounded soldiers. When a vote was taken at Finch College asking if America should get into the fight against the Nazis, only two students voted yes. And one of them was Kick. Then the daughter of the pacifist ambassador wrote to him in England and told him what she had voted for. Jack saw Kick's anguish and wrote to their father on her behalf. Quote, Kick is very keen to go over, and I wouldn't think the anti-American feeling would hurt her like it might us, due to her being a girl, especially as it would show that we hadn't merely left England when it got unpleasant. Jack was observant, and he knew that the British viewed his father as a coward, shipping his family off to safety in America, while he was, as well, retreating outside of the dangerous city. Kick's presence in England could help this perception. Not only did Joe Sr. not change his mind about Kathleen relocating to England, when Jack's letter arrived to him, it was the exact same time that Joe Sr. pulled Rosemary out of the convent and sent her on a Pan Am plane home with the Moors. This was the summer of 1940, the summer Jack got his Harvard thesis published as Why England Slept, and everyone was always rushing in and out of the Hyannis Port House. 
this is when Rosemary really started to get irritated and frustrated with her siblings all rushing around her and her feeling left behind. Here's a family friend, Charles Spaulding. Jack was autographing copies of Why England Slept, while Grandfather Fitzgerald was reading to him a political story from a newspaper. Young Joe was telling them something that happened to him in Russia. Mrs. Kennedy was talking on the phone with Cardinal Spellman. A tall and very attractive girl in a sweatshirt and dungarees turned out to be Pat, who was describing how a German Messerschmitt plane had crashed near her father's home outside Windsor. Bobby was trying to get everybody to play charades. The next thing I knew, all of us were choosing up sides for touch football, and Kathleen was calling the huddle for the team I was on. These were still days not too far from the Depression, you know, when everyone was more or less pretty well depressed about what they were going to do. And so here you see people who weren't worried at all. But then I thought to myself, well, this is really the best possible way to approach life. Except outsiders only saw the side of the Kennedys that they wanted them to see. In reality, many of these carefree Kennedys were worried. Very worried. In particular, Eunice was as anxious as she could be about her father being an ocean away geographically, but a world away when it came to war. The highlight of her 19th birthday was when a telegraph arrived from her dad. All Rose was able to do was read newspapers and fretfully wring her hands. Kick was frustrated beyond belief. Because she was forbidden to travel to England, she resorted to knitting a scarf for Billy, helping the Red Cross as much as possible, and she organized a fashion show and luncheon to aid disabled British sailors. 12-year-old Jean looked up to her big sister, Kick, and so she knit a scarf for a soldier and volunteered making bandages at the Red Cross two days a week, too. Apparently, being 16, Pat was, quote, more concerned with her diet than volunteering down at the Red Cross. According to the Kennedy women. Ah, to be 16 again. Don't sign me up to be 16 again. (laughs) Kick took after her older brother, Jack, and her ability to compartmentalize whatever it was in her life that she did not want mixing. Namely, emotions. For a month in 1940, Kick went with three close friends to a ranch in Montana to escape the dark cloud that hung over the family home. The sense of anxiety they all felt about the war. Cynthia and Frances McAdoo were two of the friends on this trip, and they reported that Kick walked around all the time in her hair curlers, laughing and seeming she had not a care in the world. Quote, Kick and Jack both had this enormous vitality, this will to live and enjoy, remembered Frances. Cynthia noted that oddly, Kick talked about her father all the time that month, but never mentioned her mother. Once back home, Kick needed to fill her time more permanently. Or maybe it was Joe Sr. telling her that she needed to get a paying job, which he did do. Either way, she called up her friend Paige, who had been working at the Times-Herald newspaper in Washington, D.C., and Paige told her to come right over. They went in, walked through the chaos of the newsroom, and straight to the office of Mr. Frank Waldrop. He allegedly ignored the fact that Kick was completely unqualified for a reporting position and couldn't type for crap because she had a pretty face. And he had a spot for a desk right in front of his office. She made $20 a week for what the previous gal called a 
pay you kind of a job. She got her own one-bedroom apartment, and for the first time in her life, Kick was on her own. Jack was at the Naval Intelligence Office during this same time, so Jack and Kick were in Washington on their own together. They hung out all the time, and this is when Kick introduced him to a blonde named Inga. Inga Arvid. Inga Binga. (laughs) And Kick was also dating. It was here she met a reporter named John White. Is he the one Kick asked about the lobotomy? Bingo. They started dating and he coincidentally was writing a six-part series on St. Elizabeth's Hospital. The hospital that Rosemary ended up getting her surgery at. If you could call it that. He's the one who warned the Kennedys about it. When Jack left for South Carolina to be separated from Miss Ingabinga, Kick took over his apartment with a roommate, and her first overnight guest was Pat. It is still so crazy to me that they all had roommates. (laughs) I honestly think it is because they were not used to being alone, and they didn't really want to be alone. Kick wrote to her friend before she met John that she felt like she probably would never get married. Quote, Sometimes I feel that I am never going to take that on. No one I have ever met ever made me completely forget myself, and one cannot get married with that attitude. (laughs) But old John didn't change this sentiment in Kick at all. She cared for him, but he did not change her life or her plans. He did, though have some very interesting experiences with Miss Kathleen Kennedy. So is she not waiting on Billy? No. So he's dating other people, she's dating other people, but they're still writing back and forth to each other. But it's not like they're committed to anything. So Kick had very strict rules that she wanted nothing to do with the thing the nuns said not to do. But she decided that John could come back to her new apartment. And so he sat in her bedroom while she changed in the bathroom. She put on her nightgown, pinned up her curls. She didn't mind John seeing her put on her night cream because she thought that it just added to the platonic tone of the relationship. (laughs) Then she got into bed and John rubbed her back or read to her until she fell asleep and then he would leave. What in the world? Kick had also recently decided that she liked to be hugged, as long as it remained a friendly action and had absolutely nothing to do with the thing that the nuns said not to do. She allegedly spent weeks subtly and silently coaching and manipulating John so that he learned to, quote, hug and caress her in a sweet brotherly way never touching what he wasn't supposed to touch, never pressing his body against her, never attempting to seduce her or lull her with some subtle sexual lullabies until she was doing what she shouldn't do and wouldn't do and couldn't do. Allegedly, according to the Kennedy women. For Kick, sex was a deep emotional commitment and she wanted to protect herself. She didn't feel she wanted to give that to John White of the Washington Times-Herald. I respect that. John thought that he was the one who didn't want to commit. But all of Kick's friends knew that by the way she was considering the letters she received from Billy, Tony Roslin, 
William Douglas home and Hugh Frazier, asking her friends which they thought were the most attractive. John White wasn't even in the running. But one night, while John was rubbing her back and waiting for Kick to fall asleep, she jolted out of her half-awake, half-asleep twilight state and confessed to him through tears. Listen, the thing about me you ought to know is that I'm like Jack, incapable of deep affection. Jack had always been Kick's hero. Joe Jr. too, but especially Jack. She wrote to him every week and called him Brother, John F. Brother, Jack, Twinkletoes, Jackie, Johnny, and anything else she could think of to show her affection. Joe Jr. got a few days leave from his flight training and she wrote to Jack that she had dinner with the future president of the United States at the Metropolitan Club. I don't know which one of you is the worst. You might have chewed gum, but he chewed his nails and it wasn't from excitement. Wait, this is Kick writing to Jack about Joe Jr.? <laughs> yeah. She knew that they both had a pressure that she would never feel. The possibility of dying at war. Kathleen wanted to be a part of the fight in some capacity, so she talked to the State Department, but she realized quickly that she was not going to get approval. I'm not sure what she was applying for. Obviously, it wasn't combat, but maybe an administrative assistant position overseas. Her roommate at the time in D.C. said that Kick, quote, hadn't any ambitions to work, but she wanted to marry well, socially well. She was not a serious journalist. It was a way to get jollies, a great way to get around and meet people in Washington. In March 1942, one of her debutante friends from England wrote to her stating that she had received a letter asking about Kick. Lady Astor wanted her to, quote, Stop all this foolishness and come right over and marry Billy. So Kick went to her hero, Jack. She spoke to him about the possibility of doing just that. Quote, I would advise strongly against any voyages to England to marry any Englishman for I have come to the reluctant conclusion that it has come time to write the obituary of the British Empire. <laughs> Jack. But he didn't have any opinions. No. I love how brutally open and honest with each other that they were. Even with, like, they were vulnerable. Right. Saying, she was saying, like, oh, I want to go with this guy, and she's not mm-hmm. used to talking about her feelings and emotions. And he has no problem telling her, like, no, don't do that. <laughs> It's funny how much he trusted his own advice with, like, romantic relationships. With everything. (laughs) He's like, you know what? I'm going to write a book about it. Why England's That's true. In June 1943, Kick boarded the Queen Mary ship in her heavy winter Red Cross uniform with a raincoat over top. A tin helmet sat on her head. She had a gas mask, canteen, and first aid kit strapped to her waist and was lugging behind her heavy bags full of her belongings. This was the ship that she and her family had boarded together in the 1930s. But then it was a luxury boat filled with actors and politicians, gangsters, ambassadors, and the rich. Everyone in silk gowns and jewels or tuxedos. But now, it was a utility ship. Surrounding her were soldiers, nurses, and cargo. The most pathetic sight in the world, according to Kick. This was the effect that the war had on most things the beauty and luxury of something as unnecessary as a vacation, lost in time and hanging sadly in the back of everyone's memories. While in front of them, 
what had taken its place was all brown and green and gray and full of anxiety. The Queen Mary was designed to comfortably host 2,000 people. Now, 15,000 American soldiers packed onto the boat. And to those 15,000 male soldiers, there were only 160 female nurses. Kick wrote that, Most of the Red Cross girls don't pay any attention to them as it isn't any compliment to be sought after when the ratio is so uneven. The girls are quite nice, but you certainly get sick of a lot of giggling females and they still like to sit up until about 1.30 a.m. every night. It took five days to sail to Europe and it gave Kick plenty of time to think. When she arrived in London, she stayed for a few days with a friend and she wrote to Jack, Everyone is very surprised, and I do mean surprised, to see me. There's much more anti-Kennedy feeling than I imagined, and I am determined to get my story straight, as I think I'll get it on all sides. She served the Red Cross as the program assistant to an officers-only club located in a luxury hotel. The club was designed to give soldiers comic relief and human normalcy in the midst of war with dancing, ping-pong, and cards. Kick noted, I'm not sure yet, but I don't think this is what I was born for. Being a girl from home and a sea of men away from home in 1943, I don't suppose would have been easy. On her second Saturday in London, for the first time in four years, Kick saw Billy. They hit it off as if they had never been apart. Quote, It really is funny to see people put their heads together the minute we arrive any place. There's heavy betting on when we are going to announce it. Some people have gotten the idea that I'm going to give in. Little do they know. Some of those old Devonshire and Cecil ancestors would certainly jump out of their graves if anything happened to some of their ancient traditions. It just amused me to see how worried they all are. Everyone's heads are together as in they're gossiping about her and Billy? Yeah. And they're waiting for Kick to give in to his proposal or Correct. whatever? <gasps> And to raise and she her was children saying, as... Little do they know that I'm not doing that. Exactly. So she was still... Like, what is she doing? She's I playing know, with fire. Yeah, it's kind of horrible. We need to talk about that in the campaigns. Yeah, for sure. But Billy really loved Kick. She could tell the moment they saw each other again. She knew that he had never felt this depth of emotion before. But she also knew that she did not love Billy. At least not in the way that he loved her. Not with that vastness. It's all rather difficult, as he is very, very fond of me. And as long as I am about, he'll never marry. She wrote to Jack. So maybe she's saying, as long as I'm around, he'll never marry. As in, like, we're not going to get married. Because we can't. Yeah. But he's also not going to marry anyone else because he's so in love with me. She wrote to Jack because she knew he would be the only one who understood her. Quote, However much he loves me, I can easily understand his position. It's really too bad because I'm sure I would be a most efficient Duchess of Devonshire in a post-war world, and as I'd have a castle in Ireland, one in Scotland, one in Yorkshire, and one in Sussex, I could keep my old nautical brothers in their old age. See, she's so cold with part of that quote. And then the other part of it, she's She's, thinking about her family. Yeah. It's so uh, weird. 
it's so sad that none of them would have their old age. Not Kick, not Joe Jr., not Jack. None of them would get to the age that she's talking about. Kick absolutely cherished the letters that she got from her mother. They updated her on what her siblings were doing, where in the world they were, and it made her feel close to her family while she was in England. Rose wrote to her daughter, quote, I was amazed and very much delighted yesterday on receiving a lovely basket full of the sweetest spring flower. It seems Jack had written to Paul Murphy. He worked at the Kennedy office in New York. And asked him to send it to me for Mother's Day. He also enclosed a card. To Mother, with love. Sorry I'm not there to give them personally. It was in his handwriting, so imagine how thrilled I was. He certainly is having a great experience. I suppose you all read the article on the PT Skippers, which was in Life, on May 10. This letter from Rose was written just a month before Jack's PT boat was cut in half. Oh, God, it's all going down from here. This is more evidence of what we talked about in the Rosemary episodes. Are you ready? So this excerpt is from The Kennedy Women by Lawrence Lemer. Quote, In Hyannisport, when Joe received the message that his son was missing in action, This is Jack. We're talking about not Joe Jr. He did not show it to Rose. Such notices were usually precursors to an even darker message or to months or even years of uncertainty. Joe considered it his burden to keep his terrible worries to himself, saving Rose from the news until he knew something for sure. So that's what he was doing with Rosemary, too. Kick was thrilled about Jack's heroics. It wasn't until she had a bit more time that she then realized she was, quote, worried to death about you. She wrote to Jack, life was catching up to Kick. She was still a bright, shiny penny, but now with worries and the bitter taste of uncertainty in her mouth. She wrote to Waldrop, Dear ex-boss, I am stationed very near where I once lived, and need I add that this life is very different from those good old days. Isn't Kick the one who said, it's a great life if you you don't don't weaken. weaken. And now I'm in a fire trap trying to study. (laughs) One of Jack and Kick's very good friends was George Mead. Yes, the notebook and paper company, M-E-A-D, Mead. I can't figure out if he and Kick ever dated or if they were just friends, but he visited Kick quite a bit while in Washington, while he was in Marine officer training at Quantico, Virginia. Does it even matter with Kick? I feel like she treats her boyfriends and her friends the same. He joined the Marines before the attack on Pearl Harbor, and he was one of 19,000 Marines who landed on Guadalcanal. The morning after they began their trek into the war zone, he was killed from a bullet to the face. George's mother wrote this letter to Kathleen, Jack, and the rest of George's friends. Quote, The love in our hearts for George certainly is there stronger, if possible, than ever before and always will be. What is death, then, but a physical change which does not interfere in any way with our power to love? With that power and love and George in our hearts, how can we be unhappy? We can't. Kick wrote back to her. Your words to us meant more than all the things I have ever read, learned, or been taught about death, war, courage, strength. 
I know that everyone who talks to you cannot help but know that what George did was just an act of obedience to you and Mr. Meade. You had already taught him love of duty and obedience to it. He was killed living up to that heritage. Future days may bring bad news to all of us, but remembering your words and the way you have acted, one cannot but feel. Please, God, let me act in a similar fashion. There were still sweet moments in the midst, or even in spite of, the terror. Kick decided to throw a party, a real party, for her brother and his crew who all had a week leave, complete with pearls and music and dancing, and her brother, Joe Jr. Neither of them could carry a tune whatsoever, but the famous American composer Irving Berlin happened to be calling one of her guests during the party, and she knew an opportunity when it presented And she had a living room full of guests, so she invited him over, and he came and played I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas and God Bless America. So though it was quite the melody, she and Joe Jr. sang and screamed with all that they had for peace and for America and for God and for home. Kick was on her knees quite often during these uncertain days. Not only did she have death and war on her mind, but also Billy, and what her family may think of a decision like Billy. She wanted to be here, though. Everyone who knew them said they were a perfect pair. They enjoyed each other, and they were effortlessly compatible. Kick, the wild one. Billy, the calm sea. It was a never-ending push and pull. With Billy, and within herself. She wanted to build a new life in England as Duchess of Devonshire, but the thought seemed impossible. She couldn't imagine what would happen if William John Robert Cavendish, Marquess of Hardington, married a girl who insisted on raising his kids in the Catholic Church and undoing centuries of tradition and principle that the great Protestant family of England so carefully laid. She also could not imagine the catastrophe of one of the Kennedys, the great Catholic family of America, marrying a man who would insist on raising their kids under the Protestant Church of England and breaking the ancient laws of Rome. So what could she do? I want to do the right thing so badly, and yet I hope I'm not giving up the most important thing in my life. Poor Billy is very, very sad, but he sees his duty must come first. Kick was the brightest Kennedy star, the most prized daughter. So how did it end up that only one member of the Kennedy family attended her wedding? And only one Kennedy was there to say goodbye at her funeral. They were at the helm during the most turbulent moment in American history. The rumors are legion. Some sincere, some slander. They gave everything to their country. But what did it look like behind closed doors, in their homes, the most intimate moments of their time on Earth? Sometimes the truth is more wild than the headlines. They seemed to live the easy life, but they lost it all in an instant. They ran faster, worked harder, 
burned brighter. And then, they were gone. You have just listened to The Kennedy Siblings, Episode 7, from Blood and Business. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please give us a review on Apple, rate us on Spotify, and share Blood and Business with a friend or a sibling. If you'd like to support the show, the best way is to become a patron of Blood and Business. You will get bonus content every month, including a monthly bonus episode, interactive main episodes, and behind-the-scenes footage. To keep up with us day-to-day, you can follow us at Blood and Business on Instagram and TikTok. You can find the link for Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon in the show notes below. Thank you so much for the support, and we will see you back here next week for your regularly scheduled programming on Blood and Business. The main source for this episode was The Kennedy Women by Lawrence Lemer. To see a complete list of sources for all Blood and Business episodes, head on over to Patreon for a free PDF download. It's a great life if you don't weaken. weaken.